the fourth watch starts now. You're listening to Omega Frequency with BDK on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Greetings, this is Phil Baker. And I'm BDK. This is a May 2018 edition of Ready With An Answer. Today we're going to be answering listener questions on a wide variety of topics. Thank you so much for joining us. The virtual mailbag opens right now. Welcome to episode 121 of Omega Frequency. Omega Frequency is dedicated to encouraging and equipping the remnant bride of Christ, proclaiming the return of Yeshua the Messiah as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If this is your first time checking out the podcast, then thank you so much for taking the time to download this week's episode. I hope it's going to be a blessing to you. And if you're a returning listener, thank you so much for coming back and supporting the podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can listen to new episodes when they air on Mondays. You can do that by subscribing for absolutely free on iTunes. Or you can listen on demand anytime you want by visiting our podcast archives over at OmegaFrequency.com. And if iTunes is your preferred way of listening to Omega Frequency, would you please consider leaving a rating and an honest review in the iTunes store? This is going to help make our podcast way more visible to first-time listeners who are searching for end times truth. We're also blessed to be part of the 4th Watch Radio Network. If you visit 4thWatchRadio.com, you're going to be able to check out a wide variety of episodes that cover paranormal and prophetic topics from a biblical worldview and perspective. Well, everyone, it's time to get our co-host, Phil Baker, on the line. Phil Baker, my friend, how are you doing tonight? Man, I'm doing good, BDK. Uh, the Rockets are in the Western Conference Finals, and uh, I'm, I'm super excited about this surprise that we've got coming up. Nice, nice. I don't follow uh, local sports basketball here, so that's nice about your Rockets. I have no heat. For once, I have no heat. No sports rivalry (laughs) to bait me into this week. So we do have a surprise guest, um, but before we bring him on the line, uh, thanks for chilling with us once again. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to answer the questions we received from the Frequency family. Before we dive into those questions and bring on our other guest, Where can people find you on the web? How can they check out your book? How can they check out your podcast? How can they check out your music? Yeah, um, so just go to reclaimingthefaith.podbean.com, and you can find almost all that stuff there. The music's uh, on iTunes or uh, CD Baby or Amazon, but yeah, just go to reclaimingthefaith.podbean.com, and you'll find what you need. Very cool. Thank you, man. And now we do have one more guest to get on the line, and it's because Phil specifically requested that we bring this dude on the show last time we did this podcast in April. So ask and ye shall receive. So we're going to bring on my best bro, Kurt Lee. He's going to read the questions and help us keep on point tonight, which is going to be very cool. Uh, Kurt Lee, are you there, my friend? I'm here. Man, this is awesome. I'm so excited. Word. How are you doing tonight? 
I'm doing fantastic, guys. Thank you for having me. Hi, Phil. Hey, Kurt, man, it's good to hear your voice, and uh, this is going to be a great podcast as you uh, you keep me and BDK in line from rambling and saying a bunch of nonsense. That's that's why I'm here. I'm, I'm here to uh, keep you guys in check, keep you guys from acknowledging every single transition, because <laughs> oh. <laughs> I know you do that just, just to get to me. Uh, but, uh, keep, keep the trains on the tracks here and uh, just, you know, hopefully add a little bit of flavor to it. Cool. Not that you guys aren't spicy enough. <laughs> cool. So this is your second time on the show. You first appeared on our origin story episode um, and kind of broke down how you're re- tied into this whole frequency thing. But in case we have any listeners who did not catch that show and are wondering who this third dude randomly that showed up tonight is, uh, tell us a little bit about how you tie into the Omega Frequency podcast. Sure thing. Uh, I uh, well, f- for starters, I, I kind of explained to BDK what a podcast was a few, well, now several years back, and uh, I kind of run a few of the behind-the-scenes things, just uh, keeping uh, the podcast uh, up and some of the. I wasn't prepared for this one. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, what do I do, BDK? You should just do what you're doing, man. Okay, okay. This is this. You guys are like pros at this. This is this is hard. What you guys do? Um, I'm just gonna think about it for one second. I'll edit this, BDK, if you need me to. I got it. Okay. I'm actually gonna leave it all in, but that's cool. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, then I will say your full Christian name, and we'll see what happens. <laughs> You're supposed to be keeping us on the rails, dude. I know. I we haven't even gotten to the first question yet. <laughs> go, go Rockets. Uh, go Washington Capitals. Uh, it's hockey. I got basketball covered. Um, no. Uh, what, what do I do, BDK? How, how, would you, how would you? I'm trying to do it in a succinct. Like. All right. If you've ever seen Wizard of Oz, this dude's the man behind the curtain. Let's just put it that way. Uh, boom. Boom. Yeah. Kurt Lee came up with the idea that I should be podcasting. Kurt Lee explained to me what a podcast was. He, anytime you see like the cool Omega Frequency logo, he designed it. Um, a lot of our graphics he designs. Um, he's basically IT tech support. Like every time I have questions, if I if I am wondering about certain things in episodes, I bounce them off him. He uh, helps me navigate the world of social media because I may sound young, but I ain't young. And um, all this Facebook stuff and social media stuff and Twitters and Instagrams and all this other cool stuff that the hip kids love. I have no clue about it. He helps me with that kind of stuff. Um, and he just encourages me. So he actually does a lot. <laughs> I'm sorry. This would be a good time to let the kids know we are on Instagram. Uh, I'm not exactly <laughs> sure what we're going to do with it. Um, perhaps an Instagram story. Uh, and, you know, I, I'd like to say I'm, I'm quality control too. I, I, like to think I, I keep BDK in check a little bit. Like you've, you sometimes you run things by me before they end up on the show. And Ed, that he maybe, says, never do that. Just, just and, don't and maybe do the that. last couple of weeks I <laughs> should apologize, like uh, to the listeners. Uh, maybe I let one through. Oh, maybe one or two got by. Um, I, I, I did vote last month, and I, I and, and I worked for the NRA last month at their annual convention. So. Uh, See? Guns and voting. 
He's my best friend. <laughs> I, and I'm so just, you I, know, it's like that. Some of the listeners that might, might be a little upset with the current state of, of BDK, I, I do have his ear, and, and we do have conversations. And maybe you're right. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe. Maybe, maybe not. I, I, I don't know. We're, we're still exploring that conversation, but maybe we should table it a little bit till later in the program. There you go. Hashtag guns and voting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. uh, this is going to be fun tonight. I, this might be the most epic episode of Freddy with an answer ever. All right. So now that we got our full cast of characters on tonight and we're raring to go, obviously, uh, we'll get this show started. So in case you're new to the show, here's what's about ready to go down. And he's ready with an answer episodes. Phil and I are going to take turns answering questions that the listeners asked either via my Facebook page, messenger, or the website. Kurt's going to read the questions and moderate this somewhat. And then one of us will go first for one question. And then there'll be time for whoever didn't get to go first to add any insights onto the answer that they may have, or we might possibly have a different take on the answer, or we might be like, cool, that's pretty much what I would have said, and then we'll move on. We're going to take turns doing that until we run out of questions, and because I went first last time, Phil's going to get to go first this time. Now let's get this show started. Right, I am ready with a question. And as BDK said, this first one's for Phil, and it's a it's a good one, and it's one that I actually have a lot of questions about, and I, I think it's laid out nicely here. So here we go. Hello, brothers BDK and Phil. Please, could you talk about fasting? How to do it practically? For example, is it completely not eating for a select period, or do you drink only water, or do you eat at some point like? midnight, then nil by mouth till midnight again. I am aware that it's not about the eat, not eat issue. It's about spending time communing with God and getting to speak with him and listen to him. I get that. It's just the discussion and how one fasts are frustrating and would therefore like to hear your take on this, please. Thank you. Yeah, man. Uh, so I, I want to start by uh, reading a few Quotes from the early Christians, um, just to give you a little bit of a taste of um, kind of where they're coming from. So this is in the Didache. Uh, so it's written between like 80 and 140 um, A.D. And uh, it says this before the baptism, let the baptizer fast and the bas- baptismal candidate and whoever else can But you will order the baptismal candidate to fast one or two days before the baptism, but do not let your fast be with the hypocrites, for they fast on the second and fifth day of the week, but you should fast on the fourth day, which is Wednesday, and the preparation, which is Friday. So it's interesting, like, here in the Didache, uh, he's saying before people got baptized, they would fast one or two days, but... Um, They shouldn't fast like the hypocrites. He's actually referring to Jewish people there um, who have rejected Jesus. And he's saying that they fast on the second and fifth day, but the Christians should fast on the uh, fourth 
and the preparation. And that's kind of, as you read their stuff, something that they would they would do. They would fast one or two days a week just as a discipline. And their fast days were Wednesday and Friday, which is kind of interesting. So, um, yeah, that's a little bit. Uh, here's a shepherd of Hermas, and that's in about 150 A.D., and he's getting more at like the heart of fasting, but he also gets some practical stuff too. He writes this. Uh, he says, quote, you do not know how to fast unto the Lord. This useless fasting, which you observe to him is of no value, unquote. But I say to you that the fasting which you think you observe is not fasting, but I'll teach you what is a full and acceptable fast of the Lord. Do no evil in your heart. And serve the Lord with a pure heart. Keep his commandments, walking in his precepts, and let no evil desire arise in your heart. If you guard against these things, your fasting will be perfect or complete. Now, having fulfilled what is written, in the day on which you fast, you will taste nothing but bread and water. Then reckon, reckon up the price of the meals of that day that you intended to have eaten and give that amount to a widow, an orphan, or some person in need. So um, he's getting at the heart of fasting, which you can, which we read about in like uh, Isaiah 58, I believe, um, was talking about uh, doing justice toward people on our day of fast and, um, having a, a clean conscience and not doing evil, but really fasting to the Lord there. But he also says on the day you fast, you eat nothing but bread and water. So one of the ways that they fasted was not just a total like water fast or nothing at all fast, but they would actually do bread and water. And one of the things that you find in their writings in addition is that sometimes they would fast from like sundown or sunset, sorry, sunrise to uh, sunset. Um, so it was like, during the day, basically, they would fast. Um, but sometimes it would be just nothing at all. But they're just different different fasts that you see the early Christians doing. And, um, yeah, I'll, I'll just do one more. This is Tertullian in 200. This is before he became a Montanist. He writes, uh, in the first place, fasting is the affliction of the flesh. It makes an offering to the Lord of mourning garments and scantiness of food, content with a simple diet and the pure drink of water. It is a victim able to appease the Lord by means of the sacrifice of humiliation. Uh, so like humbling oneself. This bodily patience adds grace to our prayers for good and a strength to our prayers against evil. So he talks about how we should be like basically afflicting the flesh during uh, fasting. Like it shouldn't be an easy kind of a thing for us. Um, we need to make an offering to the Lord of mourning garments. So maybe that's like sackcloth kind of a thing, but just not dressing up in your nicest stuff necessarily, which kind of sounds uh, like it's a contrast almost to Jesus's instructions in Matthew 7. Um, when Jesus says like put oil on your head, basically, when you're um, when you're fasting and don't don't tell people that you're fasting, but I think Tertullian's getting at at this place of 
like I'm not going to sacrifice the Lord something that costs me nothing. So we really need to do things to try to humble ourselves during that time to feel, yeah, affliction in some kind of a way. You can still do that kind of stuff without telling people what's going on, though. But the last point that he makes is um, about the the power of fasting, which is good. Um, that it actually it's it's kind of like a grace to us in a sense. Um, it adds power to our prayers, help to our prayers. So that's just some of the stuff from the early Christians. I'm going to back off now and give it to you, BDK. Cool. Um, so like Phil was saying that like when the early church wrote about fasting, they were like, before you are baptized, you should spend some time fasting. Why? Because baptism was a commitment. It was a pledge of allegiance to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And it was actually a subversion of the pledge or the what the Romans called the sacrament, which was an allegiance, a military allegiance to Caesar. So every time a Christian was baptized, they were literally politically protesting, in a sense, Caesar. And they were pledging their complete commitment to Jesus Christ. And so the fasting would tie into that because you would be doing an inventory of your life and saying, am I really, truly ready to make this commitment? Like, you never hear about this when people are baptized nowadays. It's an emotional, showy thing in churches that we do that makes everybody feel happy. But a lot of soul-searching would go on. And then Phil was talking about how they would give part of the money away or they would make disciplines of helping people as part of this fast. Basically, fasting is a way to... Pretty much do what John was saying, right? He says, I must decrease, Christ must increase. It's a way to bring that fleshly self of yourself, to deny yourself, and then to bring the power of Christ more into focus in your life. Here's the thing, man. Like, I am by no means an expert in fasting, all right? But I do fast a lot. And I couldn't write a book telling you how to do it properly. I did an episode with Kay Carswell, if you want to check it out on the back uh, catalog. It's the Spiritual Warfare Part 1. And we actually, I actually spend like 20 minutes doing the nuts and bolts of how to fast. But like the main thing about fasting, it's a supernatural act. Like Phil was saying, it gives grace to a person, right? And you can't explain that in natural terms. Like... The first time I fasted, it was a powerful experience for me, but I wouldn't say it was earth-shaking. But then the more I fasted, the more I understood that I began to see the areas in my life that were weak. They came into really close focus. When I prayed, my prayers were more intense. When I prayed for other people, there was an unction on those prayers a lot of times. Um, when you fast... It's not something that you can really say, hey, um, if you fast, this, 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 and this is going to happen. The only way to truly gain the power of fasting is to do it physically. And until you do it physically and regularly, you'll never understand fasting. Fasting is one of these things that you can't explain you have to experience. And when you fast... And you have seasons of fasting in your life, which is might be a day, might be two days, might be a week, might be a month, every other day for a period of time. 
like you're going to noticeably understand the difference, especially after you, especially if you're disciplined in doing it, you know, time and time again. If you if fasting is part of your spiritual discipline, you will understand what I'm saying. But you will never understand what I'm saying unless you physically try to do it. So this is one of those questions where I don't necessarily have all the cool things. Like, I'm not an author on this. The only thing I can say is pick some way to fast and then make it part of your spiritual discipline and you will understand. Kurt? I have a uh, follow-up question for that. Uh, if somebody wanted to start fasting, how would you recommend them doing it? Would you have them start with just skipping a meal to or try one day a week uh, what, as opposed to going in cold turkey and, and committing to it? I'm, I'm just curious. Awesome question, man. Um, I would... I would start by doing the simplest of all fasts, okay? I would start by turning off your TV for a day. And the three hours a day that you would spend watching TV, and I would also shut off your Facebook, I'd shut off your phone, all that time, that that block of chunk that you would spend doing those things, spend studying the Bible and praying. For three hours. Start there. Just start there and do that once a week. Then add skipping a meal to that. And then when you're maybe at at lunch, at work, or you're on a break, skip the break, maybe spend that in prayer. Gain this idea, because like you can, anyone can go on a hunger strike. But unless you're using that time of fasting as a time of like soul searching, study, and prayer... All you're doing is hunger striking. And God isn't beholden to do anything just because we're not eating. We can't hunger strike God. So start there. Just start by giving up the TV for three hours and the Facebook for three hours and everything else. Spend it with Jesus. And you're going to do that for a month. You're going to start realizing, hey, man, dude, my relationship with Jesus is a lot more intense than it used to be. That's going to drive you to take that next step. Then maybe skip a meal or two. And then eventually go into whatever the spirit leads you as far as like how long he wants you to fast. I've never really had a pattern in my own life. Um, I fast whatever the spirit leads me to fast. Sometimes that could be a day. Sometimes that could be a week. Sometimes that could be a month. Sometimes that could be every other day. It's, it's what the spirit lays on you. So Phil, you have any advice on that? Man, that's good. I mean, that's the, the very first thing that came to my mind was technology. Because I think so many people are like, I mean, we're, we're like addicted to it. And um, it's, and we don't even realize like how much of a hold it has on our life. I was talking to a college student a couple of months ago, um, and he was asking like how to get back into the Bible because he, like, he doesn't really have time to read. And so he's like, how, how can I manage my time better? And cause he doesn't have time. That's what he's saying. And so I'm like, well, how, how many hours a day do you spend on YouTube? Just YouTube. And he sat there and thought about it. And it was about two hours a day just on YouTube. And, um, I'm like, bro, why don't you try 
just for this week to not get on YouTube at all. And during that time that you would be, read your Bible and pray. And uh, that was difficult for him. But he did it. He had a pretty awesome week of experiencing God during that time. And, um, yeah, so like you're saying, I, I would go to the technology thing to cut that out first. Amen. Amen. Yeah, it's true. It's such an addiction. I noticed it uh, when I was sitting in the airport one day between uh, trips, and I just looked around, and every single person was on their phone. And it just it's really, you know, we're just not prepared for how it's taken over our lives. Yeah. That is the plan, right? And so we're being conditioned. Yeah. I mean, they have all these algorithms, queue up the next video, and you, you just, unlike when we were young and grown up, you watch a show that ran credits with YouTube, it's just the queue up the next one. And yeah. just social media too, there's there's no end. So. Right. All right. Well, I, I think that's a pretty solid answer. Uh, BDK, are you ready for the next question? Yeah. All right. This one's for you. Uh, it's a short one, but I'm sure the answer is, is quite complicated. Um, is the Star of David really an occult symbol? Yeah, so here's the thing. I know that with all the national fervor going on right now with Israel celebrating its 70th anniversary and the embassy move and whatnot, and with so many people in evangelical Christianity so hyped up about this right now, this question answer is going to rub people the wrong way and now people are going to be like not only is bdk the david hog of gospel preaching but he's anti-israel too and i just want to say this up front that's not true i believe israel has a part to play in bible prophecy i don't hate or have any sort of heat with any race of any people i pray for the peace of jerusalem i pray that multitudes of jewish people will get biblically saved by receiving yeshua the messiah jesus christ as their Lord and as their Savior. But here's the thing. Just like in America, there are many occult symbols on our money and on our national monuments. It's possible that other nations, even Israel, also have occult symbols on their stuff too. So what is the Star of David? And I'm not going to try to be super conspiratorial or anything like that. I'm just going to simply read some very accessible information to you and I ask that you just kind of investigate it for yourself and you measure it against the Word of God. And I chose um, references and source material that you can find very simply and easily on the Internet. It's things that you can just simply go to and verify what I'm saying. So first I'm going to go old school. Here's what the Encyclopedia Britannica has to say about the Star of David. Quote, The Star of David, Hebrew, Shield of David, is a Jewish symbol composed of two overlaid equilateral triangles that form a six-pointed star, or a hexagram. It appears on synagogues, Jewish tombstones, and the flag of the State of Israel. The symbol, which historically was not limited to use by Jews, originated in antiquity when side-by-side -side with a five-pointed star, it served as a magical sign or as a decoration. In the Middle Ages, the Star of David appeared with greater frequency among Jews, but did not assume any special religious significance. 
It is found as well on some medieval cathedrals. The term Mojin David, which in liter- Jewish liturgy signifies God as the protector or shield of David, gained currency among medieval Jewish mystics who attached magical powers to King David's shield, just as earlier non-Jewish magical traditions had referred to the five-pointed star as the Seal of Solomon. Kabbalists, which are Jewish mystics, popularized this use of the symbol as a protection against evil spirits. The Jewish community of Prague was the first to use the Star of David as its official symbol from the 17th century on the six-point star became the official seal of many Jewish communities and a general sign of Judaism, though it has no biblical or Talmudic authority. The star was almost universally adopted by the Jews in the 19th century as a striking and simple emblem of Judaism in imitation of the cross of Christianity. So catch that. This uh, hexagram, the six-pointed star, has no biblical or Talmudic authority because we don't see the term Star of David used in the Bible. It was a quote, unquote, magical sign that didn't even originate with the Jews. It originated in antiquity before then. The Jews co-opted it, and later it was popularized by, quote-unquote, Jewish mystics, Jewish magicians, and by Kabbalists as a sign of protection. This six-pointed star is a hexagram. So what's a hexagram? Well, check Wikipedia. And again, I'm choosing sources that anyone can simply search out for what I'm saying. Wikipedia, quote, the hexagram, like the pentagram, was and is used in the practice of the occult and ceremonial magic and is attributed to the seven old planets outlined in astrology. The six-pointed star is commonly used both as a talisman for conjuring spirits and spiritual forces in diverse forms of occult magic. In the book, The History and the Practice of Magic, Volume 2, the six-pointed star is called the Talisman of Saturn and is also referred to as the Seal of Solomon. So keep this in mind. It's the talisman or sign of Saturn for protection, and it also it conjures spirits and spiritual forces in dark magic. So the real question now is, what does the Bible have to say about this? Is this mentioned in the Bible at all? Well, it is, because we can go to the Old and the New Testament and find something very interesting in the book of Amos and the book of Acts. God is rebuking Israel and saying, because you are worshiping false gods, because you are mixing worship of them in with your worship of me, I'm basically going to let you get carried away in captivity by them. If you love these occult forces so much, they can rule you until you re- repent and come back to me. Amos 5, 25 through 27 is this account. It says, Have ye offered unto me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness forty years, O house of Israel? But you have borne the tabernacle of your Moloch and Chayun, your images, the star of your God, which ye have made to yourselves. Therefore I will cause you to go into captivity beyond Damascus, saith the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. And then in Acts 7.43, when Stephen is preaching to the Jewish leaders who are about ready to stone him, he quotes Amos 5.26 to them as one of the things that God has a controversy with them over. 
And in Acts 7.43 it says, Just before being stoned to death by the Jews, Stephen accused the Jewish leaders, and you took up the tent of Moloch, the star of your god Remphan, the figures which you made in order to worship them. So in these passages, the star they took unto them is the star of Chayun or the star of Ramphan. Same God, different languages, because the Old Testament was written in a different language than the New Testament. So if you go to the Bible Hub software study site and you plug in the Amos passage and you plug in the Acts 27 or the Acts 743 passage and use their language feature, you can find out who Chayun and Ramphan are. According to the Browns, Driver, Briggs, Hebrew, and English lexicon, Chayun is the proper name of a deity, Amos 5.26, the planet Saturn. Now, isn't that interesting? If you go to the passage in Acts and look it up in the Strong's Concordance, you have this. Remphan, the Saturn of latter mythology. That's the Strong's Concordance. And in the fairness of establishing everything in the mouth of two or three witnesses, if you look this up in the Thayer's Greek lexicon, Rampham is the proper name of Saturn. So, the only time we find Israel tied to a six-pointed star or hexagram in the Bible, it's actually really a bad thing. It's an occult symbol, and God is rebuking them over it because they are mixing their worship of him in with the worship of Saturn which is an occult symbol, which we read in the Wikipedia. What is it? It's the sigil or the sign of Saturn. One last thing. People will say, well, this actually comes from a tradition of David putting this on his shield as a sign of defense, and Israel is choosing this as a sign that God will defend them from their enemies. But what does the Bible say? David says in Psalms 28.7, The Lord is my shield and my strength. When he says the Lord, he's saying Yahweh is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him, and I am helped. Therefore my heart greatly rejoices, and with my songs I will praise him. So Yahweh is what is on David's shield, not Saturn, not the star of David, not an occultic star. Yahweh is David's shield and strength. And I believe if you look at the Amos passage again, I believe God is alluding to this very specifically, saying you've taken this symbol as a sign of defense when I am the one who defends you, I am the one who is to fight your battles. If you look at that passage, it says, Therefore I will cause you to go into captivity beyond Damascus, saith the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. If you know anything about the names of God, you know that when he says, My God is my name is the God of hosts, he's saying, I am the Lord of the angelic armies. I'm the one who defends you and fights your battles. So when he's literally rebuking them prophetically, he signs his name over this prophecy and says, Thus saith the Lord, my name is the Lord God of hosts. Basically, he's like, trust in Saturn all you want to protect you, but I am the Lord who fights your battles. And because of that, I am sending you into captivity because you are worshiping false gods. And because I've really stirred the pot here saying all of this, that this is a magical Kabbalistic symbol and not a symbol to worship God with. And a lot of people, they're kind of hearing this. Some of you guys might be upset. I'm just going to throw out this hand grenade into the conversation, and then I'm going to turn it over to Kurt and Phil. Um, recently, when Israel became the nation, uh, the 70th year anniversary, I saw, I can't even count how many churches 
I saw brought in Israel flags and American flags and put them side by side in the sanctuary up on the stage in honor of this quote-unquote prophetic moment. But if you've attended charismatic and um, Pentecostal churches, especially those that have been into dominionism or the latter reign, you're going to notice that a lot of these churches around the 90s or so started bringing in the Israeli flags and putting them up in their sanctuaries as a form of we we uh, protect Israel and we pray for Israel and Israel's this and Israel's that. Here's the problem. Being a Pentecostal, charismatic, spiritual believer back in the 90s, I started noticing that when this stuff started happening, that's when we had all these dark, occult, magical uh, manifestations that we were calling signs and wonders that more resembled Kabbalistic occult phenomenon in our church rather than biblical manifestations of the spirit. And I almost wonder, because God's very specific about this stuff, and even if you do this stuff in ignorance, man, like it's if it's in the Bible, you have no excuse. It's up to you to study the Bible, especially if you're a shepherd and you've and especially if you have a, a if you've learned Greek and Hebrew, you should know this. You should be able to study these passages out. If you bring occult symbols into your place of worship and you start worshiping God, but there's occult symbols that God expressly forbids and has sent nations into bondage over, like you do not want to be inviting some of these forces into your church. And I almost wonder if some of the stuff that we began to see happening really crazily in the 90s was because of this trend. Now that I've thrown that uh, hand grenade out there and offended charismatic Pentecostals and uh, Zionists, you guys can have at it for the rest of the conversation. Well, um, I don't really want to add very much to that because that was a very thorough, scripturally based answer. Um, so in light of the fact that I just told people to stop watching YouTube, I'm going to direct <laughs> them to a video by um, fellow podcaster and um, just incredible researcher, Gon Shimura uh, from the Face Like the Sun channel. I encourage y'all to go watch The Hexagram Deception, the star of Saturn Revealed. And uh, it's just kind of a video of a lot of the same things that BDK was just saying. Um, so, yeah, check that out after you fast. Um, do that. And, uh, yes, yeah, just to piggyback a little bit on the Lord of Hosts thing. It was just kind of something that was striking me as you're talking, like David was was really or God was really saying that he should be um, David Shield, the Lord of Hosts. Just cool thing for some folks to look at, you know, um, when Isaiah has his vision of the Lord God, the Lord of Hosts in Isaiah six. Um, John makes a a he kind of tips his cap. To Isaiah six in um, John twelve forty four, or sorry, John twelve uh, thirty nine through forty five. John twelve thirty nine through forty five, uh, and he basically says flat out, um, the guy that Isaiah saw, that was Jesus. That was Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of hosts, and so um, Jesus should be our shield, our protector, and he is. So. Man. That's all I got. 
Um, what was the name of that video again? Not only so that we can put that back in the listeners' ears, but so that I can write it down real quick, and then I will link it in the show notes to this episode. What was the name again? It's good. It's about 22 minutes. It's called the Hexagon. Sorry, Hexagon. The Hexagram Deception. The Star of Saturn Revealed. And that's by the Face Like a Sun Ganshamer channel, YouTube channel? Yeah, yeah. Awesome. All right, so if you want to check that out for further documentation on everything that we're saying, just go to OmegaFrequency.com, check out the show notes to this episode, and there'll be a clickable link to it. All right, I think you guys did a really great job with that. Uh, We'll move on to our next question. Uh, This one, we'll start with Phil. And the question is, We've read the book 1984. Do you think it's possible that many churches already becoming apostate will help Big Brother by turning in thought criminals? Is it something that I was thinking about today because so many places are so seeker sensitive and afraid of offending folks and hurting feelings? Well, in short, yeah. You know, um, I definitely think that that kind of a thing is going to happen when the Antichrist's Babylon beast system is, you know, fully in place. Uh, I would encourage everybody listening to read Matthew 10. It's it's kind of like um, training, a training session that Jesus gives the, the 12 apostles as he's commissioning them for the first time uh, to go out in pairs, preach the gospel, heal the sick, uh, raise the dead, cast out demons, all that kind of stuff. So after he gives them that commission, then he gives them this training session. And um, one of the things he says is like, brother will betray brother to death, you know? And so there's, there's stuff coming. Um, where Christians are turning against each other. And that's been going on for, for a long time, but I'm sure it will increase exponentially um, during the great apostasy uh, during the tribulation period. And um, I, I want to encourage people also though, to in, in Matthew 10 with some different verses, this is Jesus talking starting in verse 24 Jesus says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. If it's enough, sorry, it is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Um, And then he continues, but he says, like, don't fear them, though. Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. That's an interesting phrase. Most likely that's referring to Judgment Day. But even if even if 1984 becomes a reality and thought crimes become illegal, there's nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of that. 
And he continues, what I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. It's, it's really interesting. He's like, don't fear people. Fear God. You know, don't fear the beast system. Fear God. Fear God. And, you know, I, th- I think this is really a charge to, to me, to all of us, to have integrity in our lives, for one, you know. The more we walk in integrity, the more courage we'll have. Um, if, if you're walking in integrity, you, you know you don't have anything to be afraid of. Um, they, there's just this sense of boldness that comes. Like people, yeah, slander, okay. You know, but it's not, you know, it's not true. And the truth will eventually come to light. And uh, so, yeah, I just want to encourage you all with, with those thoughts. Amen. So there's like two ways that I read this question because it's a very nuanced question. Um, first is, would the church ever help round up other Christians and turn them over? And I'm with Phil, yeah. Jesus specifically says, brother will betray brother to death. There will come a time when those who seek to kill us and imprison us think that they are doing God or Yahweh a service. Uh, this is no secret. Uh, people like Rick Joyner, Todd Bentley, um, Jack Deere, the, the NRA has written, or the national, the New Apostolic Reformation, eh, the New Apostolic Reformation has written about this. I fully document it in episode 100, volume one. They believe they're going to be a warrior generation, the manifest sons of God. They believe they're going to be Joel's army. They must remove Christians who are stumbling blocks so that real revival can happen and Jesus can be manifested through them. Prophecy is so specific. And it's so interesting because you say thought criminals and we start reading about some of the things and some of the thoughts and the attitudes that exist in the end times. Jesus say people fall away because of offense. People are betraying brothers and brothers against brothers because love is waxing cold and because they've grown offensive. Here's the thing. You say thought criminals. That's how they view us. They view us as stumbling blocks because They believe that our thoughts and our beliefs that we hold to in our mind are offensive to a modern loving culture. They say, stop bringing up sin, only prophesy gold. Stop talking about your fundamental old school gospel of hatred. It's hindering what God wants to do in the earth. And so God in his mercy is going to have to remove some people so that Jesus can be manifest amongst them. So... That's kind of scary. But the second part of your question, I think, is really interesting because you say, well, how is it going to work? Because a lot of churches are seeker-friendly, and how are they going to go from being afraid to offend and hurt people's feelings to boldly being militaristic and violent about turning people in? Because, like, let's face it, like you're going to Willow Creek or some seeker-sensitive church where they're offended to even, you know, put hymnals in the pews or a cross on the wall um and they're so so concerned about having the right type of coffee and not offending anybody's 
you know, you know, don't want to say the, the unkindest of words. How are they going to turn into a military church and start turning people in? How are they going to start suddenly becoming violent? Isn't that the opposite of seeker sensitive? And that's a good point. But you have to understand, like, how they're getting people to move from that model of seeker sensitive to models that hold to some of these new apostolic beliefs and methods. And they basically want to put them under one tent. And that's why you see things like giant festivals, right? Like the one things, the resets, 2016s, the Azusa nows, the awaken the dons, uh, the ones that Bickle does with his uh, ecumenical tracks and whatnot. And the reason they do that is they want to invite these seeker-friendly movements and denominations to come to these things and promote that these people that are going to be there are kind of like mainstream evangelical Christianity stars. They're going to be speakers and musicians at these events. So basically, they say, we may be kind of radical, charismatic, and Pentecostals, but hey, your favorite worship artist who's not is going to be leading worship. And Francis Chan's going to be speaking, and Ronnie Lott's going to be speaking, and Ravi Zacharias is going to be speaking. And they bring in, and Rick Warren is going to be there, and the Pope's going to be there. And they bring all these people in that usually aren't a part of this thing to add some sort of legitimacy, and that draws those people in. But once they're in, they start becoming familiar, and they start saying, well, oh, these guys aren't that bad. And here's the thing that troubles me about the New Apostolic Reformation, their rhetoric, their signs, their wonders, like Bill Johnson, you know, finishes up his school of ministry, has a service, and they go around knighting people with swords. That's not in the Bible. Their music is warlike. It's chanting. Um, Rick Pino stuff is Awaken the Dawn stuff. All his music is like spiritual warfare. We're going to go and do all this crazy stuff. Todd Bentley, his signs and wonders are like, kick him in the face. That brings revival. Then the music that plays for hours and hours before the speaker even speaks and starts doing these crazy violent miracles puts people in hypnotic states. You can also check out episode 100 for that. And I know this sounds very conspiratorial, but like you take people and you are slowly, slowly conditioning them. You're like a frog in a pot. You're just turning it up bit by bit by bit until people are slowly being conditioned to enlist in Joel's army. It's just bad that the Bible says that Joel's army is actually not a good thing. You don't want to enlist in it. It's actually a bad thing. And so you probably want to steer far away from it. But I think that's how that's all going to play out. All right. I think that's a very interesting question. Uh, thank you for that one. Uh, we'll move on to our next one here. Or we'll be here all night. <laughs> <laughs> He's taskmastering us. He's like, boom, people. None of this crazy transition shenanigans for you guys. No, no. It's his I, job. I, it's good. I, I think you, you, you both offered very excellent answers to it, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll stay on track here. Uh, B, dear BDK and Phil, my heart was burdened so bad one night about the American church and how far we have gotten from mirroring the Bible and how the church on the other side of the world is being persecuted so harshly and we don't think twice about it or pray for them even. I grabbed my Bible, and it opened Jeremiah 23, and the title was False Prophets, verse 9. 
described Jeremiah, his heart was broken because of the prophets. As I continued reading, I couldn't stop crying because what the rest of the chapter described looked just like the American church as a whole. The prophets were telling them everything is okay and peace is with them. And God says, I didn't send the prophets. Don't listen to them. They will make you vain and speak visions of their own hearts. God says, if I would have sent them, they would have turned you from your evil ways and from your sin. It says that the people were like Sodom and the inhabitants like Gomorrah. The whole chapter is worth reading. I've been stuck on it now for about a month, and I can't get past it. My question is, do you think Jeremiah 23 is a prophecy for today? Also, if it is prophecy, do you think that Sorry. Also, if you Also, if it is prophecy, do you think that that parallels with the second theologians too about the great apostasy? When God says he's going to send a delusion because people don't want to hear the truth anymore. Also, do you think that the world of faith and prosperity gospel movements are nothing more than witchcraft and the same concept of law of attraction? That's a long one. Sorry. <laughs> well, it's not as simple as it seems, is it? <laughs> and, no, and I, I apologize. It's on a page break, too. <laughs> it's all good. Okay. Uh, you know, I just, Go ahead. I, I'm sorry. Uh, should I? I'll just start from this paragraph. No, no, no. It's good. I, I, I'll fix it in post, man. Okay. Okay. And then. Uh, but wow. if you want to start again, when you say second theologians, it's actually yeah. second Thessalupians. You got to say Thessalupians. Thess- <laughs> All right. Thessalupians. Thessalupians. That's how are it's you, pronounced, you, dude. Thessalupians? Yeah. Are you punking me? For, for <laughs> yeah, he's, I am. I'm punking, punking you. you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a veggie tale joke. <laughs> start with the no 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 it's it's all is that new question is that new question that's the end of the question i'll just jump oh that is the end of the question son of a okay (laughs) strike all of this we will fix it in post yo oh man it'll be there no wonder you guys sound so awesome i'm so intimidated it's just all (laughs) editing it is it is a secret i I say that but then i listened to your live show bdk and it was fantastic oh so good all right. All right. Do you have the question? Yeah, no, I got it. I got it. So first, yeah, I think that the faith and prosperity gospel movement really is nothing more than witchcraft and the same concept of the law of attraction. I'm going to answer that first. Uh, the Bible doesn't teach that we can make faith-filled proclamations for a new car, and then we'll get a new car or a new jet like Kenneth Copeland and Creflo Dollar. Heck, even Jesse Duplantis is all like, these other people believing for jets have no faith. I'm believing for the USS Enterprise. I'm not kidding. He actually has a framed picture of it on his wall to inspire his faith. Make sure he's aiming high enough. Um, it's crazy, dude. But let's look at Jeremiah 23 for a minute. You said, is it a prophecy for this day? Well, actually, it was a prophecy for the people in Jeremiah's day. But we can learn of it because prophecy is really secular um, in nature A lot of times things repeat in patterns, and there's definitely things that we can pull out of it because Satan isn't really original. 
Like he has a few really good plays in his playbooks, but they're really, really good. And so he keeps using them over and over again. So odds are like these things that you're reading in this book of Jeremiah are things that Satan is trying to do in the end times. And it does tie into second Thessalonians. So let's look at Jeremiah 23 for a minute. It's God warning against false prophet. And I'm just going to read some of what he says in it so that it can be germane to this conversation. In this uh, chapter, it says, I have heard what the prophet said that prophesy lies in my name saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. They cause my people to forget my name by their dreams, which they tell every man to his neighbors. Their fathers have forgotten my name for Baal. The prophet that hath a dream, let him tell a dream. And he that hath my word, let him speak my word faithfully. Therefore, behold, I am against the prophet, saith the Lord, that steal my words, every one from his neighbor. Behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that use their tongues and say, he saith. Behold, I am against them that prophesy false dreams, saith the Lord. And you tell them and cause my people to err, by their lives and by their lightness, yet I have sent them not, nor commanded them. Therefore, they shall not profit this people at all, saith the Lord. And when this people or the prophet or a priest shall ask thee, saying, What is the burden of the Lord? Thou shalt say unto them, What burden? I will even forsake you, saith the Lord. So basically, you read this, God is outright furious here. We have, we who have his word, right? We are to proclaim it faithfully according to this passage, which means we are to consistently faithfully share it often, and we are to safeguard it and proclaim the whole counsel of God faithfully, both the hard things that God says and the happy things that God says. We do this because we love God's word and we love people. Love rescues. It sets prisoners free from sin and breaks every chain of hell. It restores the lost unto fellowship with God. And did you know that according to the text, there is a burden of the Lord? And if we look up that word burden in Strong's Concordance, it means just to bear or or carry something. Just like it was manifested in the life of Jesus, Jesus bared or carried a cross. It was a burden. He carried it for our sins. But because he did that, he was able to use the love that he had for the world to rescue and redeem us from sin. In this Jeremiah passage, we see these false prophets, they're stealing the word of the Lord from their neighbors. How? By prophesying a positive false message. God is happy. Everything is good. Love wins. Burden? Burden of the Lord? What burden? Now, today in the modern prophetic movement, this has come back into play. This is why you're seeing some of this stuff play out in today's things. And in the past, I've read from the training book by Chris Gore, who's in charge of the prophetic training in the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. He's the guy that trains people how to prophesy and teaches people how to prophesy. And he says, quote unquote, in his book, he's like, God's in a good mood. When I prophesy good things, that's when the good God shows up. It doesn't take any prophetic talent to prophesy people's dirt or their sins. We prophesy gold. We tell people that everything's okay. We give people a positive self-image. Well, that's messed up because the testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. And what does this quote-unquote good mood Jesus say? They hate me because I testify that their works are evil. Well, BDK, that doesn't sound very loving. 
Well, it is. If you understand that in order for love not just to win, but to redeem and rescue you, you have to let your neighbor know what they need rescuing from. That's why these people were stealing the word of the Lord from their neighbors and stealing hope. I mean, think about it. If I was your neighbor and if I was a homosexual and you came to me and said, brother, Jesus loves you. I just want to bless you with some gold today. You're on the right path. You have a prophetic destiny. People are always talking down to you and digging dirt and on you and calling out your sin, but God is happy. He loves you and he wants to live in your heart and bless you. Would you say a prayer with me and ask God to bless you and live in your heart? Well, guess what, dude? You didn't help me. You've harmed me. You've stolen God's word from my ear. Why? Because if I died two seconds later, my sin would damn me to hell. And if you really loved me, you would show me my sin in love so that I could repent of it and follow Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. That would be love that rescues. So basically, as far as your question goes, the stuff going on in Jeremiah 23 is prophetic. It's happening now. It will greatly play into the delusion of 2 Thessalonians 2. And I'll turn this over to Phil because he kind of just did a podcast about this great delusion. Yeah, man. I I don't want to add too much to what you uh, just said again because it's like, spot on. Um, I will say that a lot of times you see that prophecy is cyclical, like with, with the antichrist type of figure. Um, and you had like Antiochus epiphanies, um, out of the Seleucid, uh, empire and, uh, or the Seleucid dynasty. And uh, this guy, God made manifest, basically, that's what Antiochus Epiphanes means. He declared himself God in the temple of God um, and uh, set up an altar to Zeus and sacrificed a pig on it in the holy place. And uh, so Daniel prophesied about that. And yet we all we all see that that's actually an allusion to a greater uh, Antichrist and a greater abomination of desolation that Jesus talks about in Matthew 24 and Paul references in Second Thessalonians 2. And just like there were false prophets uh, in the day of Jeremiah, he's also talking about a righteous branch at the beginning of the chapter that's coming, which is referencing the Messiah. And yet it, it seems like he's kind of alluding to the fact that they're going to be false prophets during Jesus's day as well, which there were. Um, and yet there are also going to be false prophets when Jesus returns, which Jesus says in Matthew 24. So there are a lot of, uh, shadows, um, of Christ in the old Testament. There are shadows of, uh, prophetic, um, regurgitations in, in a sense, you know, that are coming back. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I can see that as something, you know, with these prophets saying peace, peace, you know, when there is no peace. Paul talks about that in First Thessalonians 5, First Thessalonians 5. He says um, in verse 1, Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. And it's interesting, you know, like who is the they? 
Well, it seems like Paul could possibly be referencing something like Jeremiah 23 there. And the they in Jeremiah 23 are people who claim to believe or claim to belong to Yahweh. They claim to be God's people. And yet they are false. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. Um, and uh, yeah, so, you know, we can we can definitely see that perhaps coming uh, coming true again in the church with the with the tares, basically these false prophets. Um, yeah. So that's that's what I got. Great. I think I'm getting the hang of this now. Uh, next question. We're going to start with Phil and it is hi, Phil and BDK. Thank you so much for your prayers and for answering my old question. I've been incredibly blessed by what God has done through both of you and have come into a time of serious reflection and revival in my life. I'm just hoping and hoping more and more each day to shed off a little more of this world and be more like Jesus would be. You don't have to read that part. This question's been coming long. Uh, well, we did, and thank and thank you. I mean, it's it's a nice it's a nice thing to say, and I'm sure you both are very happy to hear it. The influence you guys are having on on the audience out there. I know that Christians are called to be totally non-resistant when under persecution. I think that's clear from the scriptures, and that's enough for me. I was wondering a few minutes ago, what if we see someone else being hurt by someone right in front of us, such as with the Waffle House shooting? I never had thought about what the scriptures say about that before, and it struck me. I'm going to pray about it and do some searching in the scriptures, since I'm sure it's in there. But before I do that, I thought, I would love to ask what Phil and BDK know. Thanks so much for uh, for the encouragement and um, for your support listening to this podcast and for your question. And I really appreciate that uh, you're wanting to turn to the scriptures to see what the scriptures say about this issue. Um, it's it's a really good question. And, you know, I, I think you're you're absolutely right when it says, you know, when you were saying we're not supposed to resist the evildoer. Um especially when it's in a time of persecution. Um, I, I'm curious, like, uh, when when are we not supposed to represent Christ to the world? Is, is, there, is there ever a time when we are not supposed to reflect um, Jesus to people? Uh, Jesus is uh, described as the radiance of God's glory. And the exact representation of his being in Hebrews. And uh, Paul tells us that we're supposed to do everything for the glory of God. Do everything, whether we're eating or drinking, whatever we do, do it for the glory of God. So when are we living? When is a situation in, in our lives that we encounter when we will not be having that charge to do something for the glory of God? Um, to represent Jesus, to reflect God's glory, which is Christ, to the world. Um, just a couple of questions to think about there. Another one would be, um, is, is it possible 
that the early Christians did not face um, similar circumstances as to what you're referring to in, in 300 years? Is it possible that they didn't face that situation where it was not a time of persecution, but someone was being acted upon in a violent way and a person walked up and uh, saw that? To me, I don't think that's possible that they didn't face the circumstance that you're speaking of. Like, surely in 300 years, some Christian somewhere (laughs) saw this happening. And yet, there is no recorded incident of a Christian killing another person physically, like physically killing them for the first 300 years. Now, like you definitely see in like um, Acts uh, Acts 5, I believe, with Ananias and Sapphira, where Sapphira and Ananias are struck down, but Peter doesn't touch them. Um, so you definitely see that stuff. You see um, the Bar-Jesus character um, that Paul encounters with Barnabas and Mark, and the guy is struck with blindness, um, but Paul doesn't touch him. It's interesting um, that we, we never see you never see for 300 years, over 300 years, a Christian killing anyone for any reason. There is no recorded incident of it. So just something to keep in mind. Another thing would be uh, 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul's addressing this situation where in Corinth there's um, there's a dude that's been sleeping with his, I believe it's his stepmother. Um, and the Corinthians haven't been doing anything about it. And, uh, they kind of feel kind of proud about it. Maybe because they like, it's like hyper grace situation or something where they think God's grace covers everything. And Paul's rebuking them for that. And he tells them to turn the man over to Satan, all this stuff. And he continues in, uh, in verse nine of chapter five, first Corinthians, he says, I wrote you in my letter to not associate with immoral people. But I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote you to not associate with any so-called brother, like a Christian, if he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, to not even eat with such a one, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. So remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Uh, you know, I, I think it's just, it's, it's hard to kill someone while not judging them in some kind of way for their sin. Um, I'm not sure if that's possible to not pass judgment on someone and kill them at the same time, whether it's legally, you know, right in the eyes of the state or not. I would think killing someone would fall in the realm of judging. And yet Paul says, uh, to not judge 
non-Christians, but actually that we are to judge Christians. And yet earlier in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16 and 17, Paul says that Christians have become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Speaking in the plural, he says, like, don't you know that you are God's temple and God's temple is holy? And in verse 17, he says that if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that man. So if we're thinking it's not okay to kill non-Christians, but it is okay to kill Christians, that comes with a strong warning from God. um, If you do believe we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And just lastly, well, second to last, um, real quick, I've had a lot of conversations with agnostics and with atheists um, out at uh, Memorial Park, which is perhaps the biggest park in Houston. It's it's just jam-packed. And when I've done witnessing stuff there, probably the main reason I get from from them as to why they are not Christians is that uh, Christians don't follow Christ. And many of them will quote parts of the Sermon on the Mount, um, particularly like the nonviolent issues. And so, like, is it possible that atheists take many of Jesus's words more seriously than we do? Well, clearly they're not taking Jesus's words about repentance seriously and like believe on me. And but but they do uh, oftentimes look at the ethic um, of the Sermon on the Mount, the ethics there, and they're they're kind of baffled why we don't take that more simply. Uh, so I promise this is last. Um, I I recorded a, a podcast maybe three weeks ago um, on this. Well, not this particular subject, but about um, how Christians are to fight. It's it's called a call to arms. And uh, I didn't know BDK and Justin were going to do their show. Uh, and this is the one that's in the queue. I don't have any more recorded, but this one's in the queue. And so it'll be out next week, uh, I believe when this is aired, right, BDK? So it'll be like a week from Tuesday. Yeah. Correct. So the next one that's coming out, I'm confusing myself. It's going to be called The Call to Arms. It's going to address a lot of this stuff. It's going to present um, this issue of nonviolence from a little bit different perspective, I think, than a lot of people have heard. Um, so I'd encourage you to check that out when it comes out. Sweet. I'm looking forward to hearing that. Um, yeah, I've kind of talked about nonviolence and how we defend others a bunch lately. Most everybody knows my stance on it by now. Uh, Basically, if I had to put myself between the person and the attacker and minister to that attacker and preach Jesus to that attacker while the other person has a chance to maybe get away or call the cops or something, I do that and affect them kind of like a human shield. Like, that's kind of my stance on it. But, like, I want to maybe just look at it really quickly from a different viewpoint. And this kind of ties into what Phil was talking a little bit about, because it talks about the judgments we make about people. So we will say, okay, well, someone bad is trying to harm my loved ones. Like, how do I protect them? Well, first of all, in our natural mind, we tend to divide people into one of two camps. If we're Christians, we say, these here are my loved ones. 
they deserve protecting. They're the innocent people. If someone breaks in to hurt my loved ones, I protect my loved ones because they're innocent. And this punk breaking in is the enemy. These other people over here are enemies. They don't deserve the same level of protection that my loved ones do. And we're making that distinction in the natural mind. But we have to keep in mind that God's ways are higher than man's ways. In God's mind, while we were all the enemies of God, Christ died for us to protect us from Satan and an eternity in hell. He didn't he he basically knew all of humanity was bad and didn't deserve to be protected because we had offended a holy God, but he took on flesh while we were his enemies and he protected us by dying. And he just didn't die to protect his friends or his loved ones. He died to protect even his enemies. Matthew 5:46 says for if you love them which love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the publican or the tax collectors do the same? Well, we say, well, I'd lay my life down to protect my loved ones um, by any means necessary. But what about protecting the eternal destiny of the intruder? Doesn't he deserve that same sort of respect that Jesus would give him? Instead, we're like, no, no, no. We're not going to try to protect him from an eternity in hell but we'll shoot him and send him there quicker. How does that play out with Jesus's ethics? How is this Christ-like? We are called to be like Christ, to have his mind, to be as he is in this world. And it seems completely backward to our natural minds. But this is the way of Jesus. And this is the way of the cross. And the same sort of mercy that we want God to show to us, we must extend to others even if those people are quote-unquote evil. We don't know the attacker's story. He could be lost. He could be doing this because he doesn't know any better. He could be doing this because he's demon-possessed or oppressed. He could be doing this because he's addicted to a drug and he's trying to get drug money. The only thing that's separating him from an eternity of hell is the actions that he's taking upon himself, breaking into a house one night because he might die. And Christians might kill him and send him to hell. All in the name of protecting those who we deserve, who we think deserve to be protected more than any other. But we are living the life of another. And I know it's hard to hear and it's really hard to practice. This challenges me to the core. But this is what Jesus said. And either I have to follow what he says and the principles that he lays out, or I don't. And that, that, that's, that's the road, man. The narrow road we walk sometimes. So that would be my response to that. Can I, can I, uh, follow up a little bit? Please do. Thanks, man. So like a lot of times in these kind of situations in the hypotheticals, uh, it's either like we do nothing or we, or we kill. Right. Um, and it's, Usually, like, I hope I don't ever have to do that. Like, that's that's the choice between doing nothing or having to kill them. Have to. Uh, I've never been in the situation when where I felt like I needed to kill someone, literally, to protect someone. But I've, <laughs> I guess it kind of been in a sort of similar place like much less like much lower lower scaled but 
Um, early on in my marriage, I've told this story before, uh, I was a youth minister at a church. And um, so I, it's in the first year of my marriage. This is about 10 years ago. And we had about 40, 50 kids in the youth group. And we were playing this massive game of kickball out in this field. So, you know, there are 20, 25 kids on, on each team. So it's kind of chaotic. And one of the students was a junior at the time. I believe he was a junior. He's about 16. Um, and he, he kicked the ball out to the outfield and he basically tried to stretch a double into a home run. And I was on defense at the time and I was, I was pitching and, uh, they got the ball back to me then field while he's rounding second. And this guy, he's, he's just so impulsive. He's a good natured kid, but he was so impulsive and he just kept on running and kept on running. And I'm just kind of looking at him like, bro, don't, don't do it. Don't go for home. And he did, he started running to home. And so I'm just kind of sauntering toward the pitcher's mound, getting ready to bean the tar out of him. And he jumps as he's approaching home. He, he like jumps up in the air to do a, a, a slide, a head first slide, but he like jumps in the air to do it, which was awesome because it gave me a clear view of his head. <laughs> and so I, I beamed him in the head with the kickball. And uh, everybody's just celebrating and laughing because it was, it was so it was so perfect, you know. Well, I turned my back and and the, it was like the third out or whatever. So the the teams are switching sides. And Stephanie, my wife, she was on my team. She had been playing third, and uh, she starts walking toward the line where people would bat, and this kid sees her laughing at him and I guess you know maybe he felt like he couldn't get me so he grabs Stephanie and like the rock or triple h or something like he he picks Stephanie up and body slammed her on the ground and um I'd never experienced something like that before where someone like hurt my wife or threaten my wife and I'm newlywed and something snapped in me. Um, like it, it, I, I, I snapped like, and, um, I was, it's like tunnel vision. Like I'm going to get this kid. I'm going to get him. And he's pretty quick, but I was a lot quicker back then. And he was running and I caught him and I, like tripped him like as I caught him kind of trip and tackle all at the same time and he's down on the ground and I threw my knee into his neck and like held it there like I'm 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 gonna choke this guy out I'm gonna choke him out and I was uh, I had his arms pinned down and my knee in his neck and I must have been there for several seconds I don't know maybe like 20 seconds or so it's kind of a blur, but I do remember a tap on my shoulder and I turned around and it's, it's one of the seniors and he just kind of looked at me like, bro, that's enough. And that's when I, I sort of snapped out of it. <laughs> like, Oh my gosh, what have I done? <laughs> 
I'm about to get fired. <laughs> you know, like this is not a good situation, especially right before youth group starts. Uh, I now have to apologize to the youth group and to this kid um, for basically trying to choke him out. And so I did, you know, that's how we started youth group before it started. You know, it's just like, guys, I just have to apologize. Now, at the time um, of the assault on my wife, I felt like I only had two options. Either sit there and do nothing, or I guess I have to choke this kid out. You know, I guess I've got to kill him. You know, basically, like, that's what's in my mind. I got to go get this guy. I have to. It's it's either one of those two choices. And yet, everybody there felt like there was a at least a third way you know you don't have to have to choke the kid out you could have approached that in a different way and i'm not sure what that way is but everyone agreed basically like it's not just one or the other there was a third way and um maybe a fourth a fifth a sixth or seventh way And I think what we're about to get into now um, with the next question shows Jesus telling us, guys, there's a third way. And a lot of Matthew chapter five is there's a third way to handle conflict. It's not just do nothing and it's not rip their head off or shoot their head off. There's always a third way and it's designed. This third way is designed to provoke in the assailant a recognition of their own humanity and to get them to think more like how God created them to think as an image bearer. Wow. That would be a heck of a transition into our next question, Kurt. <laughs> Shut it, BDK. <laughs> <laughs> but our, our, that would be fantastic. Our next uh, question is uh, somewhat similar to, to the last one, but with a little uh, more of a historical bent to it. Uh, we'll start with you, BDK, um, unless you have any childhood stories of <laughs> sports and taking it too far. Nope. <laughs> well, you know, we had we had Phil beating his sons at basketball. I, I, I just I, I feel like we have a long, you know, sword past of of, of uh, taking sports too far with ones younger. But uh, we'll move on to the next one. <laughs> we all have a story like that in our past. Uh, I'm going to. Keep mine a little close to the vest, though, today. All right, BDK. How do you reconcile Jesus's command to turn the other cheek and love your enemies with the Old Testament account of Israel killing its enemies? Isn't this a contradiction? Well, it would be if we didn't understand the distinction between the two. And um, to do that, let's start in the New Testament first. The government of a nation, according to what Paul's written, has been given the sword, and it's been given the sword to enforce the law and to keep the peace. And they are to use that sword in a just way. There's a difference between judgment, justice, and killing, for killing's sake. They are to use it for justice and judgment against lawlessness. Now, do all governments use that sword justly? Heck no, they're going to have to answer to God for that, but that's another matter. God, if we read the Old Testament in the Divine Council account, 
He divides all the nations up, gives them over to all of these principalities and powers, but he chooses Israel as his nation. So Israel is a nation in the Old Testament and a government in the Old Testament. And were they given the sword that we just talked about? Yes, they were. They were to use it justly and at God's command. God was to direct them to defend and protect their land against the invaders and against the Philistines and the people that were trying to wipe them out. And God also had them go and bring justice and judgment to a lot of these tribes that had Nephilim and stuff in them. So did they always use the sword justly? No. Heck no. And they had to answer to God for that quite often. But here's the thing. And before I say this, let me make this clarifying statement because I know it's going to get me in trouble. This has nothing to do with replacement theology, so don't accuse me of that. But Christ came forth to call forth a blood-bought, spirit-filled New Testament church of ambassadors and pilgrims who weren't part of any earthly kingdom or government. Our kingdom is not of this world. It's not a temporal kingdom. Jesus said this to Pilate in John 18.36. Quote, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight that I should not be delivered unto the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from hence, or not from here, or not of this world. Two things are clear from this passage. We are servants of a kingdom that's not of this world, and we don't fight for it. We don't fight or bear the sword as a physical nation would, because we are not an earthly government or nation. We are a spiritual movement. So the fact that the nation or the government of Israel was bearing a sword does not contradict Jesus's term or commands to a church who is an ambassador of a spiritual nation to turn the other cheek. Furthermore, the spiritual New Testament church is different from the physical nation of Israel. What? And this is, has nothing to do with replacement theology. I'm going to prove this in a second. The New Testament church is different from the physical nation of Israel. In Genesis, 1, in Genesis 12, 1, it says this, Now the Lord saith unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, from thy kindred, from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. Notice, when Israel was being put into play, they were promised a physical land as a home as a nation, but the church is different. If we read Philippians 3.20, for our conversation or our home is in heaven, from whence we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So different, completely different. One has a physical home, a physical land, but our conversation or our home is in heaven. Now as a physical nation, they had a different code of conduct when it came to their enemies. Deuteronomy 7, 1 and 2. When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land whither thou goest to possess it, and hath cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites, the Gizrites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Presidites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou, 
When the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, no sure, no mercy to them. God was the one passing the judgment, the sentence. God would be delivering these people to them, and they were to smite them. They were to show them no mercy. They were to destroy them. This was a matter of justice. But the New Testament church is not that. We are different. Read Jesus' words here in Matthew 5. You have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. You have heard it said that thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. He's quoting these passages. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them that despitefully use and persecute you. Even our worship is different as the New Testament church. In the Old Testament, you had to go to the physical tabernacle to worship. Leviticus 7, 8, and 9. And thou shalt say unto them, Whenever man there be of the house of Israel or of the strangers which sojourn among you that hath a burnt offering or a sacrifice, and bringeth it not unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation to offer it unto the Lord, even that man shall be cut off amongst his people." So unless you brought that tabernacle offering to the tabernacle, the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, if you offered it in any other place, that person would be cut off from amongst the people. You had to go to a physical location because Israel was a physical nation. But because we are a spiritual people and not a physical nation, we can assemble anywhere we want, and Jesus will be with us in spirit. Matthew 18.20 For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. So as you can plainly see, to use the Old Testament example of the nation of Israel as a means to justify bearing the sword as they did is not being true to the Bible and dividing it rightly. Furthermore, as I've said before, the heart of Jesus did not change when it came to fighting its real enemies. In the New Testament, he still gives us a fight to fight. It's just that the weapons that we possess as spiritual people are spiritual weapons. We have spiritual swords. And our enemy is not flesh and blood, but it's the devil and his fallen ones. Amen? Amen, man. Dude, I don't want to add to that. That was awesome. Good job. Way to go, BDK. But you had something cool about the enemies seeing the humanity and whatnot. I was wanting to hear that. Oh, I'm sorry. He's like, meh, it is what it is. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, well, I mean, so like if someone sues and takes your coat kind of thing, um, don't just give them your coat, but your, your tunic as well. Like, so you're there in court standing naked. Like if if someone's suing you for your coat, you know, your cloak, you're already very poor. Um, They can't take your house because you don't have a house. You're basically like an almost homeless person. You may be a slave or something like that. So they're going for everything that you've got, basically, which is an injustice to sue a person who doesn't have anything but the clothes on his back. Like that's injustice. We shouldn't be doing that kind of stuff. And so Jesus says, if someone's doing injustice to you like that, just stand naked in court. 
like just stand naked, which is crazy to think. But like what you're showing the person is humanity. Like you're an image bearer, too. You shouldn't be treated like that. We shouldn't be treated like that. We're, we're both image bearers. So if someone slaps you on the right cheek, um, if you're looking at someone face to face, like in a mirror kind of thing, to slap someone's right cheek, you either have to use your left hand or you have to backhand them like a quote unquote pimp slap. Um, sorry for that. But uh, people wouldn't slap with their left hand. They'd slap with their right hand. So this is this is an utter sign of disrespect. The slapper is totally disrespecting the slappy, the, the person who I can't talk, the person who's getting slapped. They're, they're totally disrespecting them. So one would think, well, I can either sit here and do nothing or I have to defend myself. You know, I've got to get this guy back because I'm not just being physically assaulted. I'm also being like emotionally assaulted. My my dignity is being challenged. My manhood's being challenged. I got to get them back. And Jesus says, actually, turn the other cheek to them, which would mean if you turn and put your left cheek out, the person can no longer backhand you on a cheek. They cannot backhand you on a cheek like a superior to an inferior, like a master to a slave. You force them, if they're going to use their right hand, you're forcing them to basically punch you like a man. <laughs> like, hit me like a man. Recognize that I'm your equal. I'm not inferior to you. I'm your equal now. Which is, again, you're showing them you need to wake up to the fact that we're both image bearers. We shouldn't be treating each other like that. There's several of those commands there in the Sermon on the Mount that are showing a third way to try to provoke someone's humanity. Again, if someone forces you to go, sorry, man, I'm just kind of like going off memory. But if someone forces you to go one mile, don't just go one, go two, right? Go an extra mile, go the extra mile. That, that comes from the fact that the Jews were slaves, They're not slaves, all of them, but they were they were servants of the Romans because the Romans had taken over that area of, of the world, Judea, Israel, and such, uh, as part of the Roman kingdom. And so now a Roman soldier could literally force a non-citizen to carry their stuff for them for one mile. And it's, it's very degrading. And so Jesus says if, if a Roman citizen or a Roman soldier comes to you like that and says, carry my stuff for one mile, which would be really exhausting. Don't just go one mile, go on another, go another one. And in a sense, you're saying to the person, you you forced me to do that, that one mile. But I'm going to do the second one. So, you know, you're not forcing me to do this. I choose to do this as a fellow image bearer of God. And during that, you're going to provoke them to be like, what is going on? You know, it's like win them by your actions kind of thing. Like show them you're, you're different than everyone. They're going to be like, what is going on? Why is this person choosing to carry my pack a second? That, that never happens. Why would you do that? And it presents an opportunity to share the gospel, the truth of our Savior.
that he came to die for all image bearers, um, the good and the bad. Uh, and that's, you know, then Jesus goes into that whole thing. You know, if you want to be perfect, you don't just love those who love you, like the tax collectors, but you love your enemies as well. That's how we become sons of our Father in heaven. And it's interesting, like in that Beatitude, uh, in the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are sons, they will be called the sons of God. So you have the very beginning of Matthew 5 and the end of Matthew 5, like being uh, like bookends, right? The peacemakers are the sons of God. At the beginning of Matthew 5 and the end of Matthew 5, those who will be called the sons of our Father in heaven are those who not just love their friends, but also love their enemies. Dude, that's good. I'm glad you shared that, man. That's really good. I mean, that's kind of like what Jesus is saying. Like when you do good to those people that are persecuting you, you're heaping burning coals on their head. It's like everyone assumes that just because we've taken a nonviolent approach that we're not being proactive in doing something. We're just like sitting around like a bunch of hippies having a sit-in, just letting them... Um, you know, sick dogs on us and do all kinds of crazy stuff while all this evil's happening. We're actually being proactive in our nonviolence, but we're doing things to bless people and not curse people, to heal people, not hurt people, to give people a chance to see what they are doing is wrong, to confront them in their evil and to show them a greater light. So there's a very proactive side to this defenselessness that people just don't picture and that don't understand. So I'm glad you brought that out, man. Especially the stuff about the Roman soldier in the mile and whatnot. That's a perfect example of this, man. Excellent. All right, Phil. Uh, we're going to come back to you at the next question here. Hello. I love your show. Thank you for taking the time to read my email. I pray and read the Bible. I know it's not enough because I'm missing something I need to have the feeling of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if it's because I'm focusing so much on my needs, such as I have a broken arm and it's not healing properly, and I have legal problems. There is too much stuff in my mind. How can I move on out of my mind to focus more, and how can I take the next step to salvation? Hopefully you understand what I'm trying to say. Thank you. Yeah, this is a this is a really good question. I think it's it's so relevant for the age that we're living in, um, particularly like it. It seems like everyone I talk to in ministry um, that's a student, and I'm not saying you're a student, but um, they they their driver in terms of their decision making. What, what's actually driving the car is their feelings. So like if it feels bad, it's wrong. If it feels good, it's, it's right. Um, how do I feel about this scripture regardless of what it's saying? How do I feel about it? So everything is like feelings based with these students that I minister to, um, lately. And, um, I think it's kind of indicative of the culture that we're in. And uh, God's word tells us, though, to not let our feelings be the driver. 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, we walk by faith, not sight. And in a sense, like you could apply feelings to like sight because it's something that we're experiencing right now that we believe to be true. But we're experiencing it right now. It's, it's almost like tangible in a sense. And Paul says, though, we walk by faith and not sight. And the writer of Hebrews says that you know, faith is the assurance of things hoped for or the confidence of things, certainty of things hoped for and uh, the assurance of things not yet seen. And um, and then in verse six of Hebrews 11. So that was verse one. Verse six. Paul says that without faith, it's not Paul, maybe Paul, who knows, maybe Apollos, who knows. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because he who comes to God must believe that one, he is, he exists, and second, that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. And so faith doesn't have anything to do necessarily with feelings. It has to do with confidence and hope in God. And that sticking with God will bring a reward. And uh, whether that's blessing in just relationships or you know, eternal type of blessings, but whatever, God is and God's a rewarder of those who seek him. So it's walking by faith, not by sight. And this, I mean, if, if, if you're married, you see the necessity of this all the time, not living by our feelings, but by what is true in God's word and that it will b- bring a blessing if we submit to it. Because like if you've, if you've been married for a- any real length of time, there, there are going to be moments where you're not feeling love for the person that you're married to. You're, you may be feeling extreme anger or extreme disappointment or extreme heartbreak. But in order to or just maybe just apathy, you know, like kind of an emptiness at at different times, you know, married couples go through these kinds of cycles and these kinds of seasons. But in order to bring about uh, the blessing of what marriage is supposed to be, we have to not let our feelings be the driver. But we have to choose to choose to we have to choose to serve. We have to choose to love, believing that as we make those choices that are faith based choices, even though I feel is I'm going to choose this loving, serving action in the faith that it's going to bring a reward in the end. It's going to bring a blessing to this relationship, even though I don't feel it and I may not feel it for a while. And it's interesting if we choose love the feelings will eventually follow. The more we choose it over and over and over, the feelings follow. And I, I, that's a prolonged analogy um, <laughs> I should have shortened for I, I think your issue right now is that you're depending, and I could be very wrong, on, but that you're, 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 fe- you're depending on feeling the presence of the Holy Spirit. Um, to give you confidence. Now, I don't know how you get those feelings. Some people get these like goosebump kind of things. There are different ways that people quote unquote feel the Holy Spirit. 
but the Holy Spirit can be moving through you in such a powerful way and you feel like God has abandoned you. And my proof for that would be Psalm 22. Because in Psalm 22, David says flat out, first verse, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, if we believe Paul in his letter to Timothy that all scripture is God breathed, right? It's inspired by God. Well, he's talking about the Old Testament particularly there. So in in David's moment, probably one of the worst moments of his life in terms of his feelings, he's actually writing scripture. (laughs) He's inspired by God. Like the Holy Spirit is moving through David in one of the most powerful ways, and yet he feels nothing from God. Nothing. But if you read Psalm 22, he continues to live by faith and not sight. As you go toward the end of Psalm 22, there's this intense communion between David and God, this intense confidence in God's existence, God's goodness, and that God rewards those who who seek him. And so he pushes through the absence of feeling into confidence in the truth of God and God's character. And that brings about blessing. And my goodness, there's no way that he could have known he would be writing words from the Savior on the cross. That'd be such a blessing. And there's so much prophecy as well in Psalm 22 about like my hands and my feet you've pierced and uh, people uh, gambling for my clothing, basically casting lots for my garments. Like he is writing just absolute specifics about the crucifixion scene and he feels nothing from God. So we can't walk by sight. We got to walk by faith. Amen. I'm with you on that. Um, Man, there've been times where I've, Felt the Holy Spirit. Like I've been preaching, and there are times where I feel a boldness, a tangible supernatural boldness come over me. Especially if I'm preaching on the street in a crazy situation. I've uh prayed for people and I've felt the moving of the Holy Spirit. I've been in revival meetings and I've felt the tangible presence of God before. Um and it's not a crazy thing, it's a very sober, humbling thing. A lot of times when I feel the presence of the Holy Spirit, it breaks me. It just makes me want to cry because I feel the burden of the Lord. Um, but I'll tell you something. The times where I've been the closest to God, I haven't felt anything because a lot of times God withdraws his presence and that tangible feeling away from you to get you to chase harder after him. But he's still there. Just like, you know, where Jesus and, you know, David are saying this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like, Jesus was saying that, but, like, God was still there watching his son and delivered his son from death. Because we know this because Jesus commanded his spirit into the Father's hand. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that we are to feel the Holy Spirit or to pursue a feeling of the Holy Spirit. We are commanded to obey the leading of the Holy Spirit and to walk in the Spirit. And we walk by faith and not by sight. So if you want to take deliberate steps to draw close to God, 
so that you can, in your words, focus, and you want a refocusing, it works the same for everyone, and this is for anyone listening. We all can take deliberate steps to draw closer to God, and we can do this today. Anyone who is saved can do it. Sometimes I think we try to make all of this stuff sound super mystical and spiritual, and that brings in all these feelings, and we never truly give anyone hope that they can do real practical things to draw close to God. But let me make a couple of very plain suggestions. We can all make a choice to watch a few hours of TV. So then we also have the same power to decide to study the Bible for an hour. It's a simple act of free choice and obedience. We can make time to talk to our friends on the phone, FaceTime, or via Messenger. But we also have the same exact power to decide to talk to God in prayer instead. We can make the choice to eat three meals a day and even some snacks, but we also have the very same power to decide to fast for a meal and to seek God. I'm not saying that watching a couple hours of TV or talking on the phone or eating a meal is wrong, but I'm saying we do that so naturally, almost like second thought. But did you ever wonder why we struggle so hard to read the Bible for three hours? Or why we struggle so hard to pray for three hours when we have no struggle at all to talk to somebody on the phone for three hours. We have no problem eating out of habit, out of grief, out of sadness, snacking while we eat meals and watch TV. It's natural. It comes so natural to us. We don't, it's just, we don't even think twice about it. But yet when it comes to make, and those are all acts of will, we have to get up and physically engage to turn on the TV or to hit the remote control or do whatever we do. But like the same sort of volition is there. We can choose to do the things that God requires. We can do God things. But the reason we have such a hard, difficult time doing it is because we haven't made it a disciplined practice. And second of all, all of hell fights against you when you choose to make those choices. But we have the power to make God choices. You said you want to focus more on God. I want to focus more on God. Bill wants to focus more on God. Kurt wants to focus more on God. The Frequency family wants that. So we need to focus first on God, make God choices, and the only one that can do it is us. So simply do it. Start with one of those three things and make the choice to focus on your relationship with God. Don't say, next week I'll spend an hour in my Bible before watching TV. Do it today. Do it consistently. And I promise you will begin to grow as you put into practice what you read. Kurt? Amen. Amen. Sorry, that was was powerful. Uh, All right, BDK, we're going to start with you with this next one. This has been bothering me for about two years. One occasion during a humanities course, a past professor of mine asked the class if there were any Christians present regarding an anthropology topic about every group having their beliefs and believing they are right and others wrong and believing only they are good people. I did not raise my hand or speak up. The reason why I hid was because I had already had a few awkward debates with this professor on gender feminist issues. 
and do not feel adequately equipped to defend the faith. However, does this meet the criteria of denying Christ? Am I no longer saved? That's a good question. And I'm just going to simply answer this one. I'm not going to go too deep into it, but I'm going to challenge you. Brother or sister, stop letting the devil preach to you. All right? Stop letting him preach his gospel to you. Peter denied Jesus three times. Did Jesus throw him away and say, no forgiveness for you? Now, I'm not excusing your denial. Your denial was wrong. But confess it, repent of it, and resolve that the next time you will not deny him. And then, this is so important, do what Peter did, what Jesus told him to do. Feed others. Now, why am I saying that? Because you'll be turning that moment of weakness that happened because you desired to protect yourself and serve yourself when that professor came at you and challenged you You backed off because you're like, I'm protecting myself, I'm protecting my grade, I'm serving myself, I don't want to get into it with this guy again. You did what you did out of selfish reasons. The best way to ensure that that won't happen again is to make it a moment of strength by saying, I'm not the same person who just cares mainly for me. And I'm going to go find a way to minister to others and to serve others, to feed others, to help others. Not because I have to pay it back but because I'm not that kind of person anymore. I'm part of a blood-bought spiritual body, and they need me in this prophetic hour. Brother Phil? Yeah, um, going a a little bit uh, different direction, um, one of of my favorite spiritual gifts that I see in operation in the church is a word of wisdom. And it's not like wisdom like Solomon, wisdom in... um, Proverbs, but it's like um, it's like when Jesus is set up in the Gospels and they ask him, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Tell us. And it's like Jesus doesn't answer the question the way they want it to. He answers the question the way they need him to. Like it's a way to speak God's truth directly to a situation and to a person or a group of people. Like when Paul's on trial in in Jerusalem and uh, the the council, the Sanhedrin, is basically divided between Pharisees and Sadducees, Sadducees not believing in the resurrection and uh, the Pharisees do. And so he just stands up and he says, I am on trial because of the resurrection of the dead. Like, that was awesome. It divided that group and sent them into a complete ruckus where the Pharisees are like, this guy isn't guilty at all. You know, like, so he had this whole room that was there to, they wanted, they all wanted to kill him. He totally split it in half and got enemies defending him by that word, which was just, it's so wise, so powerful. And so what I would encourage you to do is practice the last verse of 1 Corinthians 12 and the first verse of 1 Corinthians 14, which is basically earnestly desiring these spiritual gifts. Earnestly desire them. It's a command It's command language from Paul. And I don't know if anybody, I, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on those two verses that we're like commanded to earnestly pray for the spiritual gifts listed 
in the Bible, like 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians chapter 4. Those are places, those are the main places where you see the spiritual gifts listed. And uh, I would encourage you, like in these kind of situations where you know it's a trap, right? Like that, that's why you back down because you knew it was a trap. But in these kind of situations, Jesus would never answer the question straightforward. He's listening to the Holy Spirit and getting a word for that particular person, for that moment. And a lot of times it comes in the form of a question back to the questioner. And um, like, what must I do to attain eternal life, to attain eternal life? And Jesus is like, well, how do you read it? And then that leads to the whole story of the Good Samaritan there in Luke 10. I really encourage you in those situations to pray. Don't shrink back. Engage. But you don't have to necessarily engage on his terms. You engage on God's terms. And you'll see some pretty neat things happen. I just have a follow-up for you guys on this one because I think it's it's pretty interesting. And I, I think a lot of people have that sort of – maybe not the knowledge that – Phil Baker of BDK has, and they may have that fear of doing more damage than good. Should should somebody get rid of that thought? Like it, any opportunity to witness should be taken, or is there ever a time when maybe they shouldn't? Because uh, I, I think fear does play into a lot of people's um, desire for certain actions. Well, I mean, I would I would just encourage people to to trust what Jesus said in, in Matthew 10. Um, Cause he says like, when, when they put you, they will put you before governors and Kings for my sake in that time. Don't be afraid of what you're going to say, because when you speak, it, it won't be you, but the Holy spirit speaking through you. So like God's going to give you what you need to say. If you're listening for it, if we're listening for it, if we're waiting and remember like the disciples, like Peter and John wrote books of the Bible. So like <laughs> they're far more spiritually gifted than me or BDK, right? Peter and John, good Lord. <laughs> it's, it's almost absurd just even talking about that. Like it's, it's so ridiculous. And yet when they're standing in front of the Sanhedrin in, uh, in Acts 3 and Acts 4, the Sanhedrin go, these guys are unschooled ordinary men. They're unschooled, ordinary dude. They took note that they had been with Jesus. And so that's such an encouragement to me. You know, like I I don't have the answers. I don't. God does, though. And something actually that I see happen a lot during these episodes, like where I've got no notes because I'm not sure how to answer this. And then like in the moment. Like right now, time and time again, God just he gives he gives his kids their food at the proper time. Now, I will say this, though. In John 14, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. that's going to come um, a helper. Right. And one of the things that he says is that he will remind you of the Holy spirit will remind you of everything I've said. This is something that I'd say to a lot of the college students, even some of the high school students too. Like 
how can you be reminded of something that you've never heard? Right? How can you be reminded of something that you've never read or you've never seen? So in order for the Holy Spirit to remind us of Jesus' words, we got to get familiar with Jesus' words. we got to get familiar with the text to be reminded of the text for the Holy Spirit to keep that promise in our lives. It's, it's a conditional promise, basically, upon us spending time in God's word. And when we do, like he'll just bring these things to mind in the situation. And you may not say it perfectly, but God will help you say exactly what you and they need. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. But I also want to take it because I think, Kurt, you brought up something really interesting. You're like, is there a time where do you do you have to say something? And it's like, no. you don't like here's the thing. Like this lady was saying, like, hey, he wanted to show of hands who believed in Jesus. All right. I'd raise my hand. But like just because someone wants to challenge or debate you or, to, you know, make fun of your beliefs or ridicule you. You don't always have to throw your pearls before swine. You can do what Jesus did. Jesus could have been set free, but, like, he refused to answer his people that were calling him out. Like, they were saying bad things. They were trying to challenge him. Sometimes he did what Phil said where he asked them questions, but there's scriptures that talk about Jesus being silent before his accusers. Sometimes you just don't have to say anything. Like, the thing is, is are you obeying the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit leading you to a place where you need to witness? We should always be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have if anyone asks. But that's if they're asking from a genuine place. It's almost just trying to just straight up be a jerk and debate you. You need to weigh out in your head if what you're going to say is really going to add anything real powerful to the situation. Um, and then you have to just trust that the way that you're going to approach it is going to be God honoring and in love. So you don't always feel like, I mean, don't always feel like you have to do something. Just listen to the spirit, follow the spirit, obey the voice of the spirit. The spirit will let you know if you're to engage in this situation. And if he leads you to engage in the situation, he will give you the things to back that up. Yep. Excellent. All right, uh, last question of the evening, and we'll start with you, Phil. Hi, BDK and Phil. I first wanted to say I'm so incredibly grateful for everything God has done in my life because of what he has done through your faithfulness in this show. I know the spirit is moving in this podcast. It's impossible to miss, and it makes me feel so strongly like I want to do everything I can to stop hindering the work of the spirit in my own life. But I have been failing so badly recently, and I've lost more than I ever wanted to because of myself. The last couple of days, I didn't feel the Holy Spirit convincing me about it. And tonight, I finally realized that, and I became so afraid. I want so badly to get out of this stupid thing, and so badly to do what I can to act on the calling I felt God had put in my life. And even when I'm most boneheaded, I know I can't serve two masters, and I can't serve God with my whole unreserved heart if it even a little bit of me isn't there, but a whole lot of me seems messed up. I don't know why this sin started. It was over 10 years ago, and a lot was going on spiritually in my family. 
it really destroyed us, and my siblings paid a much higher price than me for whatever happened to let such strong evil into our family. And that, and that's particularly why I feel so terrible about things, because my stupidity has been voluntary. And all of us, I'm the only one of us who was following God. I knew the best, but did the worst. I'm really sorry for the long-winded reply. I don't know what to do, really. I've been staying up praying and reading, just hoping to stop the spiritual oppression. It gets really, really bad when I don't sin. I hope you guys know how much your podcast means to me and how much more of a fire I have in me because of your honesty, even when it hurts. Because I'm a Christian, I feel so low because of my actions. It would have been one thing if I had been lost and was saved and stopped, but because I'm not lost, I feel my sin is so, so much worse. A murderer who realizes his wrong and repents and follows God is forgiven. Because I follow God and have intentionally and repeatedly done stupid things, I feel I am not forgiven, like I'm beyond the point of no return. I will never stop repenting. Can I ever completely fulfill whatever intentions God had over my life? Is there a point where you have lost things God won't return? And how do you know when that point has been hit? Thank you both so much. I'm sorry again for the long message. Yeah, I uh, appreciate um, you writing that in and for your honesty, too. Um, toward the end of your question, you wrote, I'll never stop repenting. Um, but can I ever completely fulfill whatever intentions God had over my life? First on the repenting thing, that's, that's the life of a Christian. Like we are always supposed to be repentant people. That's the first command from Jesus in the book of Mark in chapter one, I believe it's like verse 14 or 15, where Jesus says, the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand, so repent and believe the gospel. Like, that's it. That's like the beginning and ending of the Christian life is repentance. Um, because there's, like 1 John 1, 9 says, if anyone claims to be without sin, he's a liar and the truth isn't in him. Now, later in, in 1 John, it says, like, if anyone claims to abiding Christ, you know, he won't sin. You don't sin. And that means like to continue sinning without repentance, basically unrepentant sin. And so like you're saying you're, you're in the fight, you know, you're struggling and that's good. That's a good thing to do to, to not fight, to not quit. And I think like if there's a point, you said, is there a point where you have lost things, God won't return? How do you know when that point is hit? Well, if you're if you're talking about salvation, when when there is no more conviction of sin, and a person's basically like conscience has been seared, that would be a real scary point. Um, the fact that you are feeling convicted over this, over these sins, and like you're you're struggling. You haven't crossed the line of like, you know, apostasy. Now, I think we can miss out on God's best for us 
by choosing um, to take our our lives in our hands and and choose different paths for us. Like um, it wasn't prophesied in the Old Testament that Judas would commit suicide. That that wasn't prophesied, as far as I know. It was prophesied that uh, someone would betray Jesus, that someone would betray him for 30 pieces of silver, that that money would be used to purchase a field, all of that. But Judas could have repented. Like, but he chose not to. He chose not to. And that's really unfortunate. I think he lost out on personally. And this is speculation, but I think he he could have repented. Um, just like, you know, there are many things, you know, like we, we can disqualify ourselves for. If if a man commits adultery and he's a minister, he's going to be missing out on certain ministerial jobs. You know, he may be able to get back into ministry at some point, like in a vocational ministry. But the chance of him being like a head pastor or something like that will be very slim. Doesn't mean the guy can't use him. Doesn't mean the guy can't use him vocationally. But um, it's going to take a lot of time, a lot of healing, a lot of repentance. And we can miss out on certain things um, because of disobedience. But we can open up more doors for us because of faithfulness. If we're faithful in the few things, God will put us in charge of many things. If we're unfaithful in the few things, you know, in the small things, God won't. God won't put us in charge of more things. You see that in Jesus' parables too. Um, so, yeah, that's that. That's one aspect of this. Um, but just in terms of a, a practical step that I would encourage you to take, it's really going back. Speaking of bookends, to the beginning of this podcast episode, which was about fasting, um, I would really encourage you to fast. Uh, there's a quote from Hermas, Shepherd of Hermas. He says that every fast should be accompanied with humility. So fast, therefore, and you will obtain favor. Sorry, and you will obtain from the Lord what you plead for. So I would encourage you to to fast about this and seek God and ask him to like reveal it. You said you didn't know why this all started. Ask him to reveal it to you and to help you have deliverance in that area, you know, and I would encourage you to get members of the church of your church, Christian brothers and sisters to pray for you as well. Like in Acts 12 with Peter, uh, when he got thrown into prison and the church, you know, got right to praying for him, like hardcore praying for him. And he got deliverance. So the church was earnestly pleading with God for that. And get the church to earnestly plead for you, too. And maybe, you know, like you were talking about stuff with your family. Um, family is messy. There's there's a lot of messiness in family. There's a lot of hurt feelings with family. A lot of times family, even though we love them more than others, they can hurt us more than others because they know so much about us. And we have greater expectations on family than on friends, on coworkers, on acquaintances. We just have different 
and elevated expectations for family. And so we get wounded by family like they can just wound us so hard. And so I would encourage you as you're fasting to really seek God about this issue of like unforgiveness. And I've, I've done this before, but like in Ephesians 4, when Paul talks about not letting the sun go down on your anger, uh, he says, and do not give thus give the, the devil an opportunity or a foothold and how that that. That word um, opportunity or foothold is top on in the Greek, and it, it can mean dwelling place. Like in John 14, when Je- Jesus says, I'm leaving you, but I'm going to go prepare a place for you. Like and we think about mansions in heaven, well, that word place is top on. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. Well, Satan wants to get into your place. And doesn't mean that as a Christian that you can be possessed by Satan that you could be like own like his possession, that he could own you. Like if you're owned by Jesus because you've been bought with a price, um, you can't be owned by Satan and owned by Jesus. But you could give somebody the key to your house. Yeah, and that's that. That's the idea of giving the devil an opportunity. It's like handing someone the keys to your house. And like if you're going to go on a vacation. The person that you ask to house sit most likely is going to be somebody that you trust implicitly. You wouldn't be wanting to hand the keys of your house over to a thief. Um, And that's what we do, though, when we stay in unforgiveness. And Paul gives the remedy to that situation uh, a little bit later in Ephesians 4, where he says, Therefore, forgive one another just as God in Christ forgave you or Christ in God forgave you. Like that's that's the remedy. And so I'd really encourage you again to just seek God in prayer and fasting with others fasting with you, too, and see if there's any reconciliation that needs to happen and do it with humility. Um, God gives special grace to the humble. He fights against the proud. He resists the proud, but he gives special grace to the humble. That's James 4, 6. So bank on that promise and you'll see God move. Amen. A lot of good stuff was said there, man. Um, I had some notes, and I'm just I'm gonna I'm gonna throw those aside for a moment and go unscripted because I just realized something as Kurt was reading the the question at that that end point that Phil was talking about about restoring and can God ever use something because there's all this tragedy and sin and darkness and whatnot, and I just remembered something that like. I just want to take a moment and encourage you, just speak some encouragement into you. Phil gave you the technical stuff, and I'm going to give you just a heartfelt moment of encouragement here. And I, and I realized I had the perfect, and I didn't plan it out this way, but I had the perfect person to help me on this because Kurt Lee is here with us tonight. Mm. You, you with me here, Kurt? Kurt's like, what are you doing? He's going to go I, off I, script. I, I don't know what he's talking about. All right, hold on. I'm here. All right, you're going to help me out on some of this because I'm going to use an example. You know, like the power of our testimony is so powerful because you can you can tell people this is what the Word of God says, and you can preach that at them, and you can tell them the promises of God are yea and amen. You can preach all of that, but what's really powerful is when you can take it one step further and say, and let me tell you how I know. 
because this has been proved down in my life. That's how we overcome. We overcome by the blood of the lamb and by the words of our testimonies. And they're, they're, they're inexplicably tied. And so me and Kurt have done a lot of life together. And, um, we've probably known each other almost as long as we haven't known each other at this point. And, um, Kurt has seen me at my really, really good, and he's seen me at my really, really bad. And we're going to just open up a window here for a second, because I want to encourage you about something. So remember, like, when, I think it was, like, what, 2008, right? Like, I had just left the church. And preceding that, like, Kurt knew kind of the weird, just radical stuff I was into, like, I was always going. I was holding on a full-time job. I was preaching. I was an evangelist. I mean, I was wearing so many different hats. And I was trying to fit a radical version of church into, like, the old wineskin of a very conservative church Pentecostal holiness movement. And everything was just going crazy. And about, like, six months before I left the church in around 2008, my father-in-law commits suicide. And um, I have to preach his funeral. And it broke me. And not only did it break me, but it broke my wife and it broke my mother-in-law, who was a really solid part of our church. Now, it got to the point where I was doing so much in ministry that I was neglecting my wife at home. And I was of no comfort to her. And it got to the point where I just left. I said, you know what? I have to do family now. And we have to try to work through this tragedy, and I can't I can't do it. I didn't leave the church because I was disgraced or had an affair or Jimmy Swagger did the thing. I did it because I in my mind, if I didn't take care of my wife, I wasn't qualified to be a pastor. And I always thought one day I'd probably get back into pastoring or being an evangelist. But like me and Kurt, we started working on a crazy project together. And the project we were working on necessitated the fact that for six months we had to study the four Gospels in extreme detail. Remember that? Oh, yeah. And like literally we were, you know, this is what Christ said. This is what was going on. And you would think that that would have had a tremendous strengthening of my faith. But with the burnout that I was experiencing and seeing Christ, we were putting Christ into a modern setting and a lot of the things that we were discussing and seeing just how the church was completely opposite of it. I remember sitting down with Kurt one night in a restaurant having a conversation with him and saying, I'm giving up. I'm walking away. I've lost my faith. Remember that, man? I do. And it was it was hard because, like, I could see that Kurt was troubled by this. You, you had two speeds, man. You were, you were living that radical sold-out life for Christ, and you, you don't do anything halfway. And to hear you say that was, was shocking. Yeah, and I remember that you're like, dude, like, you didn't even know what to say. And then, like... You backed off and you gave me some space to be me, but like to say that I had gone through a dark place of spiritual seeking would be an understatement. 
like Kirk can tell you right now that I I went through a period from like what 2008 to 2014 maybe about 15? yeah so about six yeah. years right where I was completely in the dark and I was into some weird philosophy uh I'll let Kurt Kurt tell that part go ahead man well I I, I don't think you you were you were you still had the hunger but I think you were just you were burnt out on as as far as where to find the answers and and it just it, i think it took you a while and it, I, I just don't know how much i want to say Dude, publicly s- too say it all man yeah cuz i want to help this person because there's redemption at the end of the story i think it'll yeah. be powerful so go ahead man yeah. share what you remember yeah well i i just i just remember you and and it was it was a it was a tough time for you. I mean, you, you it, it just seemed like it was capped off by what you were going through personally with your your wife and and your uh, uh, and and her family and everything that was going on there and and just still looking for the answers and just being and, and you were going through some physical issues as well at the same time and and that didn't help either personally. So. Yeah, I, I've seen you at your lowest, and 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 you came through it. Um, but when we're talking lowest, like you've seen me almost die a couple of occasions of alcohol poisoning during this period. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a lot of heavy drinking, uh, the disregard for physical health to to some degree. Um, just and, and it's 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 tough too because you were always kind of that rock in in my life with, with spirituality and, and Christianity and and uh, and it, it just it was you, you've a lot I think a lot of people listen to you may have the feeling that you've always just been this spot on and this diehard in, in your faith and and I think we all suffer with with questioning things and you know they they hear you a couple hours every week or two and, and may think that you're always able to maintain that level. And, and there's times when we're not, I mean, we're only human. Yeah. And like, we're talking not only all of that stuff, but like I was seriously searching out something called Asatru, which was a Viking religion because they taught virtues instead of commandments. And I thought that was more in line with what was spiritually accurate. And Kurt used to tease me about it all the time. Cause like, uh, well, I mean, <laughs> you, you are from Minnesota and you have some Viking ancestry. And, and if you see a, see a thread, you, you like to pull it. So, was, yeah. but yeah, you, you were, I mean, I, I think your, your desire for, for spirituality kept going and, and you were just, I think at a point where you were just hungry. And I, I think it was a, it just you weren't being fulfilled in, in any of your other endeavors in any of your searches. But that fulfillment came back because even at my very lowest, and I think like the lowest part for me was remember that night we went to go see that movie and we were eating at Sobelman's and like. 
you had the second burger. You shouldn't have done yeah, that. Yeah, I had the second burger, <laughs> but like, remember when I came over to your house, I was mixing vodka with energy drinks? Yeah, you shouldn't have done that either, but yes. You were just like, what are you doing? And you're trying to talk me out of this. And we went and we saw some sort of movie. And I remember you had to drive me home in my own car because I was just gone, you know? And I remember like saying, dude, I got to stop. I got to stop. And so we pulled into, uh, what was it? Um, was it Denny's maybe by your house? Uh, yeah, I think it was a Denny's. We, and, yeah. uh, and dude, it was a bad story. Let's just put it that way. I don't want to glorify in some of this. It, it was a bad story, but you, you found Christ again in a Denny's bathroom. I did because, like, as weird as this sounds, as weird as this sounds, dude, Kurt's, like, sitting in the lobby hoping that I'm not dying, and I'm sitting there puking my brains out in a bathroom stall. Like, seriously, about to die. And all I'm hearing is Huey Lewis and the news playing Back in Time from the Back to the Future soundtrack. And I know that sounds completely ludicrous, but all I could all I could think of was, this is what my life has become. I'm sitting here because I've mixed way too many vodkas with way too many energy drinks, ate triple Sobelman burgers, saw some sort of crazy movie, and I'm puking my brains out and blood. And I'm going to die while Huey Lewis in the news. Uh, uh, this punk rock hillbilly kid is going to die in the most undignified manner possible. Listening to Huey Lewis in the news singing about how he wants to go back in time. For the record, uh, I, I, I like Huey Lewis in the news. So any, any listeners who are about to write BBK and uh, say, what's your problem with Huey Lewis in the news? It's... Uh... I, I'm I'm all about you, Lewis, in the news, and I'm all about the Back to the Future trilogy. All right, <laughs> I'm not I'm not saying anything bad about it, but I'm just saying it, there's a certain sort of rock bottom that gets hit in that moment because I you everyone listens to me know that I have a huge sense of irony, but in that moment I didn't have any irony in me, Kurt. All I remember was the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, "Listen, this is where you are. It's not too late for you to go back in time and find me." It was that simple. He hadn't really spoken to me. I hadn't read my Bible I in six years. And like Kurt said, I legitimately refound Christ in a Denny's stall while Huey Lewis and the News is playing. And the grace and the mercy of God that he would just take me back, even though I so dishonored him. blew me away dude it's like i don't even drink i don't smoke anymore i don't do any of this crazy stuff i just follow god and you're sitting back listener and you write in and you're like there's been so many times i've sinned and what makes it worse is that i know that i'm not supposed to do it as a christian and i do it anyways and man like i'm worried that like maybe god will give up on me and take back the calling he has on my life. But if you're still sitting out there and you're thinking that, that means that God hasn't given you over to a reprobate mind or seared your conscience. Because <laughs> he cares. And the fact that he's put this podcast in your path 
to help encourage you is a sign of bad. I don't believe the mistakes, man. And I'm going to tell you something. Here's the testimony part. Give me a second here. Let me get a drink. People ask me all the time, would you ever get back into preaching or being an evangelist? And I say, why would I want to? My podcast goes into countries I'd never be able to get into. Is heard by thousands and thousands of people every week. I see more fruit from this ministry than I ever did behind a formal title. God is good. And because I was bad and I repented and I trusted God, and it took me some time to put everything back into order. It's not like I came out of that bathroom and I was podcasting the next day. It took about another year or so, right, Kurt, for me to get my wheels back underneath me. It was, but there was a change. There was a change when you came out, like, oh, th- things are different now. Like, something happened. Like, yeah, I could definitely tell even then, like, that you were serious. And God restored back what the canker worm ate. What the devil intended for evil in my life, God turned to good. And in some sort of crazy way, even though I went through all this darkness and was puking in the bathroom, listening to Huey Lewis in the news telling me to go back in time, you're listening to this podcast and you're being convicted by the voice of the Holy Ghost. That proves that God's not done with you yet. Because he wasn't done with me. And the fact that you're able to hear this podcast right in and say, I want God to use me again. It's available to you. It's available to you. All you have to do is do business with God. To find that root cause, like Phil said, and and to seek deliverance. To have God put godly sorrow in your heart over these areas where you're falling short, man. And then serve Him. So what I'm going to do before I lose my, this is, this, is a, this is a very personal thing, and I don't talk too much about it. Before I lose it, I just want to pray for you. And we'll just take a second and pray for you, man. And then we'll close this podcast out. God, would you help this listener see the root cause of the things in the flesh? Holy Spirit, would you shine your spotlight into this person's heart right now and expose the things that need to, to be exposed, the things that need to be laid down? Would you grant repentance to this person so that they can change their mind about these sins? Cause godly sorrow to grip them over these things. Burden them with an anguish to be free. Work that godly sorrow under repentance, but don't leave them in that dwelling state of sorrow. Take them from it, Lord. Rescue, redeem, bring them to a place of freedom as they choose to feed themselves the things of God, as they choose to strengthen themselves spiritually. Lord, as they are being restored unto you, would you show them how to be faithful, to follow you again? Would you fill this person with a new baptism of fire, of Holy Spirit power, so that they can be a bold witness unto you in their lives? Have your way in this person's heart, Jesus. 
And Father, have your way in all of our lives also. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, it's been another awesome episode of Ready With An Answer. We'll be coming back next month with another one. We got a lot of cool questions coming in. There's still a little bit of time if you want to ask a question or two. And so I want to thank my brother Kurt Lee for coming on this episode, hanging out with us. It's uh, been really awesome. You did a good job with the questions. Thanks for jumping in. I didn't. <laughs> pulling you in the unscripted at the end there. Uh, the, 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 yeah, th- thanks for having me. But uh, yeah, I was I wasn't sure how far you wanted to go with that. I I I know you pretty personally, so I I don't want to. I know that you're a frequency family, but uh, it, we usually reserve those for holiday <laughs> stories. <laughs> it's all good, man. And I I just want to say it's a it's a pleasure to finally meet uh, Phil Baker. Um, I've been listening to you for a while, so it's. Uh, it's kind of nice to have a little interaction with, with that voice that's been in my head. Bro, thanks for all you do, man. Pleasure is mine, man. I appreciate all the ways you, you serve the kingdom, man. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Is there anything else you want to say, Kurt, uh, to the Frequency family before we let you go for the evening? Uh, just thanks for having me. And uh, I just want you guys to know that uh, that I know BDK and Phil take all the questions seriously and they appreciate them. And, and they're, uh, we're just all very fortunate to be able to have you. Uh, and that's it. Just thank you. Sweet, man. Brother Phil, as always, I love you too, bro. Um, we all do. We appreciate that you show up faithfully to answer these questions every month. Before you go, bro, where can people find you on the web? How can they get your book of music again? Yeah, just go to reclaimingthefaith.podbean.com and you can find what you need. Awesome. Well, Frequency family, it's been real. I hope this show's been a blessing to you. And if it has, bless someone else with it, man. Bless them with an act of love that rescues. Do that this week. And sanctify the Lord, your God in your heart. Always be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh you for a reason of the hope that's within you. Do it with meekness and in fear. Grace and peace, my brothers and sisters. Amen. Amen. As this week's episode draws to a close, I want to share with you how you can find freedom from this world's system of slavery to sin. The very first thing that we must understand is that in this world, everyone is a slave to sin. We all have sinned and we all have fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says that we're rebels, we're criminals, we've broken God's law, we are locked in a spiritual prison, and we are very much prisoners of war. We're caught between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, and Satan has legal rights to steal, to kill, and to destroy because of the fall. He steals from us our hope. We look around at this prison and we think we will never escape. He destroys our lives in the darkness and ultimately he will succeed in killing many souls as they follow him to hell. But the gospel or the good news of the kingdom is that through the finished work of Christ revealed in his death, burial, and resurrection, there is redemption, there is restoration, and there is freedom offered by God to each and every person who would receive Christ as the king 
of the spiritual kingdom. King Jesus came to earth. He lived the sin-free life that we could never live. He died the death that we deserve to die. And he rose from the dead triumphantly. And he has the keys to hell and death. And he has the keys to your prison cell. And he offers you the freedom that only he can offer because he alone can bind up the brokenhearted. He alone proclaims liberty to the captives. And he alone opens the door to the prison. And he looses all who are bound. 2,000 years ago, in that one moment of redemption, every single prison cell was open. God made a way through Jesus for everyone to potentially escape. But here's the problem. Most of us have stopped right there. We've stopped right there with the gospel. We may have heard the story. We may have heard the good news, but we sit there still in this dark cell and we're like, oh wow, isn't it amazing? He died for me. I can be free. I can be forgiven. My prison door can swing wide open. Forgiveness is available. He provides for me a way of escape. But you have to stand up. You have to walk out and boldly approach the throne of grace. You have to surrender to the king, repent of your sins, and trust Christ to absolutely save you. Ask the Holy Spirit to grant you the power to do that. Ask him to soften your heart so that you can see sin as God sees it. Ask him to trouble your heart with godly sorrow over the times where you broke his laws. And from the honesty of your own heart, in your own words, call out to Jesus to save you. And step out by faith and say, I am free. Confess Christ as your Savior before men and lay down your old life and put on his new life instead. Today is the day of salvation. Today you can switch allegiances. You can accept the terms of heavenly surrender. You can leave the kingdom of darkness and begin to walk in the newness of life and never turn back. Now, if I can help you further, either by talking with you more about the salvation that Jesus offers you, or if I can encourage you, to take the next step in living a sold-out, radical kingdom life for him, please visit OmegaFrequency.com and click on the navigational link entitled Salvation. From there, you're going to find a button that says, Please help me take the next step. And if you use it, I'll be able to communicate with you specifically about this matter. Well, as always, I want to thank you once again for taking the time to download this week's episode. It has truly been my honor to be able to spend time with you this week and to discuss the things of Yeshua and his coming kingdom with you. Until next time, may Yahweh bless thee and keep thee. Have you ever wondered how the earliest followers of Christ would have addressed the core issues facing us today? Well, join me, Phil Baker, for a discussion on how we can simply follow the words of Christ and apply his message to our lives. Listen to my podcast, Reclaiming the Faith, on iTunes or reclaimingthefaith.podbean.com. 
thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please consider sharing it with someone else. Our full podcast archives, along with their original show notes, can be found online at omegafrequency.com. Now, until next time, this is BDK reminding you that we don't need to fear the future, because in the end, Yeshua wins.